You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Once again, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today is June 30th, 2021. Episode 86 of Season 3, Episode 151 of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I want to tell you a story about yesterday. Yesterday, I came home early from work, intending to go to the dentist. I intended to go to the dentist, and I did go to the dentist. My wife took me, dropped me off. She was told I should be done in about an hour and ten minutes. And I was there as a follow-up appointment to last Tuesday, the Tuesday of my vacation, in which I learned that I had a very significant cavity on one of my teeth, and it might require a root canal. It might not, but it might. And they wouldn't know until they got in there to do a dental crown. So, obviously... As you can imagine, I was not looking forward to this dentist appointment. I spent the day getting stuff done at work, and then I came home early. And on my way home early, I made a call to my brother who is moving. They just built their first new house. They have a house. They own a house. But they just built their first new house in Millican, Colorado. And they're going to need some help moving in. And he had asked me earlier in the week if I would be available, me and my sons, to help him move last night. And it suddenly occurred to me as I got a text message from him on something unrelated that I hadn't gotten back with him. And so I got back with him and I called him and I said, hey, listen, I am sorry for not saying this sooner, but I have a dentist appointment and it might be a root canal and I don't know how out of it. I will be if it ends up being a root canal, even if it's just a dental crown. I've never had either of those before. And so maybe not tonight would be for the best, but maybe in the next few days, if that's all right. And so I'm listening to him and I'm asking how he is. And he's obviously a little bit out of breath because he's been moving by himself, trying to get the truck loaded and unloaded loaded at his old house, unloaded at his new house. And he said, it's just a slog. There's so much to do. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll happily trade you places. And we both laughed because it was funny because that's not the way it works, right? The point of my story is that no matter how much I would have preferred trading positions with my brother and doing the moving for him, loading and unloading a truck instead of going and possibly getting a root canal. That's not the way it works. And we all know that's not the way it works. If I'm the one with a cavity, which is getting closer and closer to the nerve inside my tooth, if I'm the one who needs the dental procedure, what sense would it make for my brother to come and take my place? It might make all the sense in the world for me to go and do his job, 
but it might not make any sense at all. In fact, it doesn't make any sense at all for us to trade places and for him to sit in the dentist chair on my behalf. It's not like taking an SAT test where the answers are all that matter and it's something you're producing from outside of yourself alone. It is something in you that needs to be worked on, something distinct and meaningful that is in you that is required or necessary. And without that, it doesn't make any sense to swap places. We're brothers, about as alike as two people can be, sort of being twins. We sound very similar, although I speak differently than he does. He talks in a very different way. I am much more, uh, what's the word, formal oftentimes, and he's extremely laid back. And he makes fun of my being formal sometimes, and I poke fun at his being so laid back sometimes. But all of that is beside the point and irrelevant when it comes to my need to go and get this tooth taken care of yesterday. He needed help moving, but it wasn't as simple as just doing whatever I wanted to do. And even if he had wanted to get a root canal rather than move, it doesn't work that way. And we know it doesn't work that way. The reason I bring all this up, now that you know the point of my story, let me explain why I think that point ties in with what I want to talk about in this podcast episode. Bobby McPherson, a friend of mine, he heads up the Reformed Conservative. Check it out if you are unfamiliar. It's a blog, and he started his blog around the same time that I started writing it on the Rocks blog. And we and a friend of his, another friend of his, are going to start a bit of a writing club. And it'll just be the three of us initially. We might open it up and extend it to others as well. But one of the things that we're going to try and do is make one another into better writers, help one another to become better writers, become more confident writers, critique one another's work. And so towards that end, we are going to take one piece, one essay every week, and we're going to send it to one another. We'll share it, and then on Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, we will sit down and we will talk about the piece that we wrote in response to this essay. It has to be a 1,000 words or more, and that gets us writing on a regular basis. That gets us critiquing our work. That gets us being critiqued and getting used to being critiqued. And all of that will be good toward the end of working those muscles, those internal, emotional, mental, spiritual muscles that are required in order to be able to write well. You have to exercise those. You have to stretch those. Well, the article that we are writing in response to this first week of In Gladii, Veritas, the Sword of Truth, is the name of our group. The article that we are going to write in response to this week is a piece from the late 1940s by C.S. Lewis titled Priestesses in the Church. 
originally published under the title Notes on the Way in Time and Tide, Volume 29, August 14, 1948. It was subsequently reprinted with the above title in the posthumous God in the Dock book, published by William B. Erdman's Grand Rapids, Michigan. So I read this Priestesses in the Church, question mark, article this morning, and I've begun work on writing my response. 665 words. I had to stop a word short so I didn't get to the mark of the beast. Pro tip. That's how it works. But I've started writing my response, and I won't read for you what I've written until it's done, and maybe not even until I've come through on the other side of our writing club get-together Friday over Zoom. But I do want to talk about this essay by C.S. Lewis because in it, he is addressing this proposal that is circulating that women be ordained as priestesses in the Church of England. They have priests, so why not have priestesses as well? There aren't enough good men. Where have all the good men gone? There aren't enough qualified men, and now we need women to be invited in. And spoiler alert, that has happened, that women have been invited into ordination in a good many, or a bad many, rather, denominations in America, in the UK. But his criticism is all the more poignant for having the benefit now of hindsight where we can see these things play out and it isn't theoretical. It is now our situation that these warnings and observations he made have played out and are playing out before our very eyes. But I bring up the story about the dentist, because that is how I look at this issue of women being ordained as pastors, as overseers and deacons in the church. Only in that case, with the dentist, my brother's not over-eager to get a root canal, potentially. Yet women are over-eager to take headship away from men. They look at it as if it is this prize because all they can think about is how they would rather not do the thing that is their lot to do. They want to do this other thing because it is not the thing that they have to do, that they're required to do. And in taking control over whether they do this or that thing, they feel a sense of peace and security, apparently. That's my theory Because there's nothing in the scriptures to support their ambition. There's nothing biblical about women demanding ordination. There's nothing biblical about the argument that men and women are interchangeable, that their parts, their anatomical genitalia is arbitrary. There's nothing biblical about the argument. In the beginning, God created the male and female. God made them male and female. God made them in his image. That's Genesis. Then you fast forward to the Apostle Paul's qualifications to overseers and deacons when he writes Timothy and Titus, 
the overseers and deacons and the would-be overseers and the would-be deacons are told they must be the husband of one wife. That excludes women. Necessarily, not accidentally, and not in error. It is our error. We are the ones who are in error if we object to that exclusive language. Some things should be and must be exclusive. And if you make them not exclusive, you destroy them. Some things have to be exclusive and narrow and limited. Otherwise, they lose their essence and they die. And if someone is so puffed up that they would rather this thing die and they get their way, than have it remain alive, and they don't get their way, that's evil. That's an evil thing. When God gives the judgment, after Adam and Eve listen to the serpent in the garden, take the forbidden fruit, they eat it, they fall into sin, God doesn't give uniform judgment and a uniform curse to Adam and Eve. To Adam, he says that the ground is going to resist him when he works it. It's no longer going to give up its fruit easily. It's going to produce thorns and thistles, and he is going to have to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. It's going to be hard and unpleasant. Work is going to be hard and unpleasant. Well, that's an interesting thing that he tells Adam that. Because it implies that there is an expectation that Adam is supposed to be providing, even in the garden. He was working and providing for his wife and himself. It was just the two of them, and, but they were a family. And for them to have what they needed might have been easy, but it needed to be done nonetheless. And so the fact that he is told that after the curse, work is going to be hard, Producing for his family is going to be difficult. He's going to have to sweat for it. He's going to have to endure thorns and thistles for it. That is significant. Meanwhile, God turns to Eve, and so also to all of her female descendants forever, or at least as long as the curse endures. And God says to Eve that she will have pain in childbirth. Eve doesn't say at that point, or at least it's not recorded, well, wait a second, God, why won't Adam have pain in childbirth? Why doesn't he feel everything that I'm feeling? That would be a nonsense question. I'm sorry, the phrase, there is no such thing as a stupid question, is mistaken. That is a stupid question. All of these men, these young men who tie themselves up or agree to be hooked up to being electrocuted, tense their muscles so that they feel what it's like to have contractions as if they're having a baby. It's stupid. That is stupid. I wonder what childbirth feels like. What does childbirth feel like? That's a stupid question. Don't ask stupid questions like that. Eve is not recorded as asking God, why doesn't Adam feel pain in childbirth? Adam, for his part, is not recorded as having asked, why doesn't Eve have 
this earning by the sweat of her brow business that I'm hearing about. Why doesn't she get thorns and thistles when she tries to work the ground? I think they had more good sense than that. They had more good sense and good judgment in that moment to bite their tongues and keep quiet and take what they had coming to them from the Almighty. But another thing that God tells Eve is that her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her. Now you could say that her husband ruling over her is a consequence of the fall, but not so fast. It's more reasonable to suppose that her frustration is a consequence of the fall. Her frustration at her husband exercising authority over her is the result of the fall. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul writes to husbands and wives, and he says to the wives to submit themselves to their husbands as unto the Lord in everything, it doesn't make sense if submitting to your husband is a consequence of the fall and is broken. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that the husband is told that his glory, the glory of his head, is his wife. Just like he is the glory of God being reflected here, just like he is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her, it doesn't make sense that that is portrayed and that it isn't gender inclusive. There would be no need to modernize the text if it were not other than our modern sensibilities. But that's just it. The people who want to modernize, quote unquote, the text are revolutionaries. And it's satanic. The serpent has visited them too and said, hath God said? In C.S. Lewis's day, the proposal was priestesses. Priestesses in the Church of England. And Lewis's response, not to give anything away, you can read the article for yourself, and you should. It's a good article. Lewis's response is, that would fundamentally alter and abolish Christianity. Because we read in the text that men are supposed to be the leaders in the church and the authorities in the church. We don't read in the text that it's equal opportunity, that it's no big deal if you put a woman in that role instead of a man. To say that you disagree with the text to the point that you're going to flagrantly disobey it, ignore it, why stop with having priestesses? And if you're going to have equality, why not abolish priests? Why have priestesses or priests? Why have a church at all? When we get away from God's authority and his word being inspired, then what sort of Christianity do we have? Really? It's a mockery. It's an anti-Christianity. It's worse than if everyone would just stay home. It's no Christianity at all. If we say we're going to fundamentally transform the church along revolutionary lines because we don't find the Bible sufficiently modern. I was reading this book on Charlemagne yesterday as I was building shelves at work. We have a loft in the upper portion of 
our main office building at Jackson Lake Gas Plant. And it was already for storage, but there was a lot of empty space. There were two wooden and plywood shelves that had been built, but there was a lot of empty space and there was not a lot of free shelving left over after putting all of our spare devices, instruments, wires, cables, etc., on the shelves. And so I ordered some new shelves and I was building them yesterday morning and I was listening to Charlemagne by Johannes Freud and Peter Lewis. The curious business about Charlemagne, Charlemagne, if you will, Charles the Great, first Holy Roman Emperor, having died in 814, he was a contemporary of Chaco Canyon that my son and I visited. Chaco Canyon in New Mexico is believed to have been inhabited starting around 850 AD. That puts its construction beginning around the same time that Charlemagne died. But as you read this book about Charlemagne, who's this heroic, mythical, larger-than-life, legendary figure in European history, you will be struck by how often the author, relying on the best research, the best academic opinions and musings and speculations, has to say, probably, maybe, could be, we think, presumably, almost assuredly, likely. In other words, the passage of 1,200 years has us unable to discern fact from fiction when it comes to one of the most influential figures in Western history, in world history, for that matter. 1,200 years, and we have to fill in a lot of gaps with guesswork. So you have Charlemagne doing things and reigning and having this huge impact. And over and over and over again, the author presumes, based on what we think was pretty common in that time period, what was common, what was uncommon, what do we see, and what do we not see? You have to be careful when you start arguing from what you don't see because arguments from silence can be filled with just about any kind of assumption. But over and over again, there's this cynical sort of suspicion with regards to Charlemagne that his story, his origin, his childhood, his sometimes darker deeds were whitewashed or that some of the things that he did were maybe portrayed in a more favorable light than how they actually occurred. And maybe some of the things that were not quite so epic were marginalized and they weren't written down and recorded because in the mystery of it, there would be a greater regard. People's imaginations would fill in the gaps and they would presume a greatness that was perhaps unwarranted about 
Charlemagne. But that's just it, is in the modern secular humanistic way of looking at things, man is the measure of all things. I think therefore I am, as I talked about in yesterday's podcast. We look at someone 1,200 years removed from our circumstance and we can't even begin to understand them as they saw themselves. We can't help projecting onto them the biases and prejudices of our day. Well, that's not right. Well, that's not fair. Well, that wasn't very sporting. Well, that was rather barbaric. No, you weren't there. So for one thing, you don't really actually fully know what happened, as you've attested by all of your use of the word likely, probably, maybe, possibly, could have been. But for another thing, you being the measure of all things, you don't have a fixed standard by which to judge these people from the past. And so where do you get off acting as though they were in error and we are the enlightened ones? What I mean is when it comes to this Christian tradition and teaching, which is biblical, which is scriptural, which comes from God's word, which is God-breathed, that men are to be the leaders in the church, that an overseer or a deacon must be the husband of one wife. When we see that and we approach it with a postmodern and a modern bias and revulsion, that that was rather sexist of the Apostle Paul, rather ignorant, maybe we shouldn't consider his writings to be scripture if he's going to go on like that. It's not like my Jesus, the very self-important interpreters say to themselves. My Jesus wouldn't say that, but he did. Your Jesus did say that because this is God's word. And Jesus affirmed Old Testament and New Testament, every word of scripture. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And yet, if we have this moving standard and this radical doubt, and the only thing we're for certain about is that we exist, how are we so certain that Paul is the one in error when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but she is to keep silent, as in all the churches. If she has a question, she's to ask her husband when she gets home. You see, men and women are not interchangeable. Men should wield authority, and there's a profound uncomfortability with the idea of men exercising authority in church on the part of modern Christians in the West. We are uncomfortable with it because we've spent the past century apologizing for agreeing with God. Well, I'm very sorry. God's rather old-fashioned, you see. You can't hold it against him. Don't take it personally. Well, wait a second. (laughs) It's a little bit better than that. God's not old-fashioned. We're revolutionary. And like foolish children who don't understand why the vacuum cleaner has to be plugged into the outlet in order to vacuum the floor, we think we can unplug these things and put them any way we like, and they'll still work, or they'll work better. But that is hubris on our part. Have you ever tried plugging two plugs into one another? Have you ever tried putting two outlets 
end to end. You don't get power that way. And I'm not talking about physical only. I'm talking about emotional, mental, spiritual, because men and women are fundamentally different. Feminists, whether men or women, apologists who wring their hands as they try to cling to any vestige of what God says in his word about maleness and femaleness, think that it's all the same. They think that it is just a matter of biology and they'll apologize or ridicule the fact that the majority of men are unsuitable, as they say. Well, wait a second. What makes any more women suitable than all of these men who are unsuitable? The very fact that there are qualifications that Paul writes to Timothy and Titus says that most men are not suitable. We don't need most men to be suitable to be overseers and deacons in the church. We don't need villages full of chiefs and no Indians. You don't need a kitchen chock full of chefs. We only need so many. But the fact is, that's not what this is really about. It's not really about being fair to women. It's not about fairness. This is about hubris. This is about us thinking we know better than God. This is about us rejecting inequality because fundamentally, one way or the other, We've embraced this Marxist idea that inequality denotes oppression. If there's inequality in outcome, that means there was foul play. This person has more than that person. Well, that's not fair. How exactly do you intend to correct the problem? You're going to make everyone uniform? How far can you go with that? You're going to reach a limit past which you are unable to exceed your ability. People are not all equally gifted. People are not all equally physical and athletic. People are not all equally healthy. People are not all equally sophisticated and educated. People are not all equally strong or beautiful or graceful or clever. The fact of the matter is that inequality, lack of uniformity, inequity is, by God's design, a feature of reality. When you decry inequity in and of itself, without being able to point to an objective transcendent standard by which you can say, this person over here has done wrong. They have done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. They have done what is wicked. That is why they have an advantage. They stole this thing, this thing that they have more of than everybody else around them. They only have it because they stole it from someone else. Unless you can prove that and do, by all means, when it's the case, prove it in a court of law. But unless you can, you are a slanderer. You're a malicious slanderer. You're envious and jealous. You want what you don't have. You are actually the one who wants to steal something that doesn't belong to you. And the fact that this person has more of it than you do does not give you a right. The fact that feminists and their complicit accomplices among men have tried to have this desire over their husbands or over all of the men 
in society exercised inside the church, in government, in academia, in the workplace, in community, in the family, everywhere. The fact that they have tried really is not about men and women. At the end of the day, it's really about God. It's really about a discontentedness with God's created order. Social justice, which wants to paint with broad brushes and make wide generalizations about all men and all women, about all white people and all black people and red people and yellow people, about all Christians and Jews and Muslims. And we'll say these people are oppressed because they have less, because there's inequity. And these people are the oppressors because they have more. And that must be the way that it works. The social justice crowd has found an end run to make around God's word being the standard. How then shall we live? Not as unwise, but as wise. And also, what do we need to repent of? In the absence of a clear definition of what we should and should not repent of, or what we should and should not be about, our soul cries out for definitions, for structure, for order. And if we reject what God says is good and evil, we have to come up with some other standard. And tragically, we come up with standards very often throughout human history, in every corner of the globe, in every tribe, every tongue, every nation among men, we come up with standards which very often contradict God's standard, which are, which are arbitrary. And yet God's word is not arbitrary. We shouldn't be embracing this as Christians. We shouldn't take it for granted, and we shouldn't be apologetic. When God's word says X, Y, Z, we should always be ready to give an answer for the reason and the hope that lies within us, but to do so with gentleness and respect is critical, not to do so with timidity. God didn't give us a spirit of timidity. He gave us a spirit of boldness and of a sound mind. If that threatens some people, if it makes them uncomfortable, that says more about them than it does about us. Doesn't mean that our tone was off just because they're uncomfortable. That might just be conviction on their part. And they don't want to reckon with the conviction that they have that they are in error. That might just be the fear of the Lord, not fear of us. They shouldn't be afraid of us, but they should have fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Unless they have that, they cannot be wise. And we want them to be wise. So we ought to ourselves demonstrate the fear of the Lord, not cowering, not timidly, but boldly and with a sound mind, calmly, contentedly, going about our business, going about our way, and embracing what God's Word says about maleness and femaleness instead of making war against it. In any event, I got to run. That's all I've got for today. Thank you for listening as always. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.